Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Christoph Minarchek. Christoph is a former US federal contracting officer and former director at GovCon. For the defense contractor and qualified expert witness, Christoph is an attorney, consultant, and instructor. He has a wealth of experience negotiating, reviewing, and managing billions of dollars and government contracts over the course of his career. In addition to all of this, Christoph is a best-selling author in government contracting and is nationally recognized for this subject matter expertise. So a very warm welcome, Christoph. Thank you so much. That was indeed a very warm welcome. I very much appreciate that. Thanks. Glad uh, to be here. It's our absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And before we dive into all your amazing projects and achievements thus far, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the reality hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality? Wow. Well, I've never seen it, but I'd probably guess that it's at like a Negative five. Usually, <laughs> right? usually movies and TVs about the law, you have things like, oh, there's the surprise witness that just jumped into the middle of the uh, trial. So I can't really give an educated guess, but I wouldn't think it's probably that realistic. It wouldn't be very interesting and dramatic to watch if it were. Exactly, exactly. So I think it's a valid minus five. And with that, we'll move <laughs> swiftly on. So let's start at the beginning, Christoph. Would you mind telling us a bit about your background and, and journey? Sure. So after law school, I joined the United States federal government in a presidential management fellowship, a special program for future leaders. And I joined, you can be in really any position, but I, I joined as a contract specialist. This is the contracting officer for the government contractors out there. That's the person that you deal with on the government side. So I was the person that would negotiate with Boeing or BAE or Lockheed Martin. I would negotiate on behalf of the federal agency. And I worked for mostly defense agencies like Air Force, Space Command, Office of Naval Research in the Navy, and also the Pentagon. And throughout that time, I did a special rotation also as an acquisitions attorney for the federal government. Uh, but I eventually left the federal government to go work for a defense contractor. I was kind of like their director of government contracts. And I also served as a contractor on site, being a special advisor in government contracts for the federal government again. And again, on the defense side at the Pentagon and later at an agency called DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. But along the way, I started my own business, and that's what I do exclusively now. I'm self-employed, uh, ChristophLLC.com. I provide consulting to defense contractors, government contractors of all stripes, including subcontractors. And then I professionally teach government contracts, and I serve as an expert witness in government contracts litigation. And I've also, along the way, penned quite a few articles, and then I have three books in the Government Contracts in Plain English series. That would be Government Contracts in Plain English, the original, Federal Acquisition Regulation in Plain English, the second, and then my latest book is called Government Contracts Negotiation Simplified. Love it. Love it. So where and when did your interest for contracts uh, originally stem from? I always thought that contracts was one of the more useful and practical 
parts of the law. So during law school, everybody takes all sorts of classes and various topics. I particularly enjoyed contracts law. And again, when I went into that uh, special fellowship with the United States federal government, I really had the opportunity to take almost any job. It was not a particular um, vocation or job series or even agency. You kind of had your pick. And so I saw a place called Air Force Space Command out in Colorado. And I thought, now that sounds interesting. And they had these positions for contract specialists. And I thought, I love contracts law. That's something I'm good at. I'll try that. So I think for me, like most people in government contracting, I kind of fell into it because if you ask a lot of people in the industry of government contracts, it's very rare, very rare that you'll find somebody that says, when I was eight years old, I knew that when I was an adult, <laughs> I wanted to work in government contracts law. It's uh, usually something like, I wanted to be a paleontologist because I liked dinosaurs. That was definitely something I would have said when I was a young boy. Love it. Love it. And you mentioned before your your, your books, because you are a, an author of three best-selling books, and you mentioned the government contracts in plain English, if I can get my words out. And the book delves into all things contracts, including federal contracts, subcontracts, understanding common contract sections and negotiating the pros. So can you tell us more about your books? Yes. So there's there there were plenty of books about government contracts law, and I, I read them, right? I was new to the field, and I wanted to learn everything about that profession. And I noticed something. They were all about as thick or thicker than the Bible, and they were all very densely written in legalese. They used a lot of jargon. And I thought to myself, you know, that's okay for a lawyer like me, but what about everybody else? I, I said, where is the practical, plain English, simplified version that, you know, maybe an attorney who's new to this field or has only a few clients in government contracts, or what about the business owner or the busy professional? Where's the book for them? So I searched, I searched, there, are, there were no such books. So eventually I just wrote them myself. And so it's right there in the title. Plain English. If you can't explain a complicated topic simply using plain language, maybe you don't understand it yourself. So the three books are summarized as follows. The original is Government Contracts in Plain English, and that is a one-stop shop to gain an understanding of all the major uh, legal principles, uh, procedures, ins and outs of United States federal government contracting and subcontracting. That goes A to Z. Where do I start? How do I finish? How do I perform a contract? How do I win a contract? What are the pitfalls that I need to avoid? How can I guide my client to success? The second book is Federal Acquisition Regulation in plain English. Now, the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, that's the most important set of regulations for this industry. And so that book takes you on a highlight reel across that incredibly large set of regulations. It's thousands and thousands of pages. I condensed it into a short read, put it all in plain English, and I even put it into a frequently asked questions format, and it answers more than 700 frequently asked questions about the FAR. So if you want to get smart on the most important regulation, the thing that's going to have cookie cutter clauses that will be found in your contracts and subcontracts, Check out that second book, FAR, in plain English. And then the latest book, which is Government Contracts Negotiation Simplified. That book focuses on the practical 
advice, tips, and tricks for actually redlining, drafting, negotiating, editing, deleting clauses out of your prime contracts with the governments or your subcontracts uh, between uh, different companies. And it goes into things like what should you look out for if you're, for instance, guiding your client to success? What do you need to be aware of? What do you need to stay away from? Uh, what are the most common clauses? It's got a chapter going over an explanation of all the most common uh, clauses that you'll find in a government contract. And it also has a chapter each dealing with the negotiation perspective of everybody with whom you would deal in government contracts. So that includes the negotiation perspective of the federal government, a prime contractor like Boeing or Lockheed Martin, a subcontractor, also sole proprietors, people who have you know maybe a one-man, one-woman business, and also with an individual employee, if your client or you are going to be negotiating for a particular position with a government contractor. Because again, I want to stress something, and that's that government contracts is a huge industry. So maybe you're not an attorney that's advising government contractor clients. Maybe you're not a government contractor yourself, as in the owner of one of these businesses. But there is a massive opportunity for you to simply get a job in employment with one of these government contractors because it's a wide open market. So I wanted to hit every angle, um, have something in there for everybody in that third book as well. Yeah, and it's fascinating stuff that you've been able to to create. So with that, what was your inspiration behind the books? Would you agree your own experience as a government contractor was a contributing factor? Absolutely. I would say my experience as a private sector government contractor and also my experience as a federal employee being on the other side of the table, negotiating with the government contractors, you know, having both sides of that perspective uh, definitely helped me out. And I would definitely say that my past experience is, is borne out in the books because I'm, I'll put it this way. If you master the rules, you can master the game. If you can understand the game from both sides of the playing field, so to speak, uh, you're going to have a, a better understanding and you're going to be able to anticipate what your counterparty wants to do. And you're going to be able to make better decisions yourself. And another inspiration for writing these books, again, is that the government contracting is it's complicated. It really is. There's a lot of dense regulations, very strange and surprising laws that you absolutely would not anticipate. If you were an attorney coming in from the common law of contracts in the private industry, believe me, you'll be surprised by some of these rules. And when I teach courses on the subject, I can always tell when there's a general counsel who is new to government contracts in the audience because I see some eyebrows raised and the hands shoot up immediately when I explain certain topics. So given all the complexity, I just wanted to do my part to kind of increase the transparency, right? I think the more transparent and open a market is, uh, the better off for the taxpayer who's ultimately footing the bill of these government contracts, the better off for the nation, the government contracts are supposed to benefit our country, and you get better results. You get lower prices, better results. You spend less time and money on the, administrated, on the administration side, and you can focus on whatever it is you're trying to do, whether that's helping your client or running your business. I'm a pretty practical guy. I'm always business oriented. And so I wanted to have something that can unlock people away from that, uh, you know, administrative nightmare that sometimes government contracts can be. So I saw a niche in the market. 
I saw an opening which was, where's the plain English version? Where's a short, concise, but comprehensive book that gives me everything I need to know to make intelligent decisions and get smart in this industry? It wasn't out there. So I wrote them myself and the proof is in the pudding. There absolutely is a market demand because the books are flying off the shelves. People want it. So I'm very glad that it's been a success. Yeah, and I, and I love that. You know, if you can't find something, build it or create it. And you, you did exactly yeah, that. Right. So uh, I love it. And, you know, we, we touched on it there, but you were a former uh, U.S. federal contracting officer. So can you tell us and explain what a federal contracting officer is? Yeah, so in the United States government contracting world, there is a single position that is responsible and that has the authority uh, to make contractual changes, to sign new contracts, to terminate contracts. That is the contracting officer. So the idea here is that the federal government doesn't want just any employee to be able to obligate the government to be able to enter into these contracts for millions and billions of dollars. So they have a special job series. They have a special position that is the contracting officer. And the contracting officer is a person who receives what's called a warrant, a warrant, kind of like a badge, but really just a written document that says, you know, John Smith has a warrant to sign contracts up to, say, $10 million, or it might say $100 million, or it might even be an unlimited warrant where John Smith can sign any dollar value contracts and can obligate the United States federal government. So these contracting officers have a very important position, and it can be quite stressful as well if they're not uh, prepared to deal with these situations. Because remember, when you're negotiating on behalf of the federal government, if you work at a Department of Defense agency like I have in multiple places, the person on the other end of the negotiating table, you know, this is you're in the shark tank, right? You're negotiating with billion-dollar corporations like Booz Allen Hamilton, Boeing, BAE, all these household names that you've heard of. And believe me, the other side comes prepared. They have excellent people that are very highly trained and very good at their job. So you have to be on your toes and you have to keep your teeth and claws sharp as well just to stay up to speed. So it's a very interesting position. There's a lot of stress, but it's something very important because you're the first line of defense to make sure that the agency and ultimately the American taxpayer is getting a good deal. So yeah. you get a lot of practical experience with contract negotiation and contract drafting because those are the primary duties of the job. Yeah, and I, I love that. And you're so right. You know, the first line of defense is, is, is fundamentally important. So with that, what is so enticing about U.S. federal contracts? Why is it likely that almost any lawyer will encounter a government contract or subcontract? Great question. It's because it's huge. It's, it's expansive. It's always growing. It's a lot bigger than people think. Uh, let me put it this way. They spend about a trillion dollars a year. That's that's T, trillion with a T, not billion with a B, but about a trillion dollars per year. And you might call it the largest client in the history of the world so far, right? We'll wait on that. But there's a lot of money being spent. And don't forget that it's not just the prime contractors that have a direct contractual relationship with the government. There's a vast network of subcontractors who have contracts with those prime contractors. And there might be even 10 layers of subcontractors in a long chain. And the other thing about it is it's diversity. The government, the United States government, buys almost anything you can imagine. If you look around the room or the setting that you're in right now, as you listen to us speaking on this podcast, just look around. What you're looking at 
are a bunch of items that the government buys. Uh, cameras, computers, pens, paper, tables, paint, buildings. Anything you can imagine as a product is probably something that the United States government buys. And then in terms of services, same deal. The United States government buys a wide variety of services, whether that's accounting, financial analysis, lawyers, intelligence agencies, anything you can really imagine, there's a very good chance that the United States government buys that and so that you can become involved in that industry. And I also mentioned earlier, even if you're not the one selling the service or the good, or even if you're not the lawyer advising that company that's the contractor or subcontractor, it's a huge employment market. I don't want to get the figure wrong, but I know that there is a very large fraction of all American you know, jobs and employment is directly or indirectly tied to United States federal government contracting and subcontracting. So for the lawyers out there, there is an exceedingly high chance that you will eventually come across a government contractor client. And there's also a very good chance that you might find yourself in the position to have to help them look over or negotiate some type of a government contract or even more likely a subcontract where it's between two companies. So bottom line, government contracts is really something that every attorney needs to have at least some familiarity with or they need to have the ability to kind of phone a friend and bring in outside help to uh, guide them through those murky waters. Yeah, and murky waters indeed. And thanks so much for, for sharing that and giving some clarity on it. Time for a quick break from the show. Are you a legal aid practitioner in England and Wales, specializing in civil or criminal legal aid matters? If you are, this message is for you. As a legal aid solicitor, you don't have time to waste on legal aid case management software that doesn't work to your needs. That's why Clio has developed a quicker, more accurate and affordable solution for legal aid solicitors in England and Wales. It could save you hours in your month, particularly when it comes to end of month invoicing and claims to the legal aid agency. To see how it all works, visit clio.com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. That's Clio, C-L-I-O dot com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. Now back to the show. Christoph, I heard uh, you explain something that shocked the government contracting community or something yeah. that I think the federal acquisition regulation, the set of regulations known as the FAR, which is familiar to all government contractors. Your statement was about whether the FAR appeals to federal contractors. So can you share this controversial statement? Can you repeat it live during this interview? Okay, Rob, for safety's sakes, I, I, I have to say this to our listeners. First of all, everybody has to be sitting down. People with heart conditions <laughs> should switch off now because this is, this, is, this is a barn burner, folks. But the Federal Acquisition Regulation, the most important set of regulations, this is the regulation where you'll get all the cookie-cutter FAR clauses in your government contracts. The shocker about it is the FAR does not apply to federal contractors. Now, a lot of people just get blown away. They don't understand what I'm saying at first. They get really confused because, unfortunately, there's a lot of misconceptions out there, and this is one of them. And it's a chapter in two of my books, and it's a published article that I've had out for years. No, the FAR does not apply to federal contractors. So you're scratching your head. How are you going to thread that needle? Well, let me explain it to you. The FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, is a set of regulations that, by its own words, by its explicit terms, applies to the government, 
the federal employees conducting acquisition, right? Performing this government contracting function. The FAR itself gives instructions to the government about when to use certain FAR clauses that are found in the FAR and when to insert those into contracts that they you know, procure and sign and negotiate. Where federal contractors get tripped up and where it becomes your job as the attorney to make sure that they don't get tripped up is a lot of government contractors will fall for what I would call a bluff or blowing smoke or really just a trick where maybe the prime contractor, or maybe the government contracting officer, maybe a subcontractor, who knows, but somebody comes to this government contractor and they give them a FAR citation, right? They say, well, FAR 9 point something says that you have to do the following. A lot of people just roll over and they think, oh, it's the FAR. The FAR is really important. I better follow that. Well, you shouldn't. What you should do is look in your contract, read your contract. Your business deal is the contract itself. So the FAR applies to government contracting officers. It applies to federal employees conducting acquisition. It does not apply to federal contractors. Now, the FAR is relevant to federal contractors because portions of the FAR probably will be incorporated into your government contract. But remember the key here, Rob, is that Look at your contract. If somebody gives you a FAR citation, look in your contract. See if it's referenced or incorporated into your contract. If it is, well, then maybe you need to follow that guidance. But if it is not, then you're just getting a FAR citation and your retort, your answer can be, well, I looked through my contract. I can't find anywhere that says I need to do what you're telling me to do. I see that you gave me a FAR citation. That's all well and good. But could you point to me? Could you show me the page in the section of my contract that tells me I need to do the following? If every lawyer that does government contracts and if every government contractor knew this fact, they would be in a much better position. They would be avoiding a lot of mistakes and they would be avoiding a lot of unnecessary work and they'd be able to decline a lot of inaccurate or misleading advice or direction that they get. And it's also fundamental for you to understand the government contracting industry. The FAR is a set of regulations that can be put into a contract. But remember, you signed a contract. Follow the contract. Don't necessarily follow a, uh, you know, unrelated citation within the FAR. Yeah, really good advice and just fascinating listening to you there about that that insight. And during your time as a senior contracting officer for the Department of Defense, you contracted for Air Force One, cool, Navy and even the Pentagon. What type of work did you undertake and what did you learn during your time there? Okay, so first Air Force One is like the the aircraft that the president flies around and I did not contract for that. I worked for Air Force Space Command, which is even cooler. So, yeah. so I, work for, I work for the Air Force Space Command where they do satellites and rockets and stuff like that. So let's go down the list. So I was at Air Force Space Command Space and Missile Systems Center, and that's where they buy rockets, spaceships, satellites. For yeah. instance, the GPS satellites that uh, power you know your, your cell phone in your pocket and the GPS you use to drive around and things like that. Uh, So that was very interesting. That's where I bought things that they call major systems acquisition. And in plain English, that means big billion dollar stuff that costs a lot of money. Billion with a B, (laughs) right? So rocket ships, spaceships, satellites, things that were shooting off into space and things that they like to call major space-based weapon systems, which sounds uh, very, very intimidating. So that was an interesting place to be. And then I moved over to the Pentagon, 
And that was at the Washington Headquarters Services, which is the little contracting office for the Pentagon and all of those defense agencies related to the Pentagon. And at that job, I was really buying everything. So they call that operational contracting because it means you could be buying almost anything, pens, paper, computers, IT equipment, services, supplies, uh, maybe weapons, depending on what Pentagon client you're talking to. But that was a very broad and diverse uh, post where I was buying anything you could imagine. Um, I spent a lot of my time buying information technology and also services, professional services while I was there. And then my third stop amongst the Department of Defense was at the Office of Naval Research. The Office of Naval Research was a very interesting place because, as the name implies, they do R&D research and development. And so they did a lot of things that I probably can't talk about, but a lot of their public uh, research projects were actually quite fascinating. Uh, if you've ever heard of the uh, railgun, which is a special type of, uh, I think, electromagnetic uh Kind of, kind of like a laser gun, but a little bit different, where they use a frictionless environment rather than combusting a missile or a bullet in the traditional sense. They used a rail gun. They did all kinds of strange underwater experiments. I think some of them involved dolphins with little helmets on their head to train them to go find underwater mines. All kinds of interesting things you can find on their website that are publicly available, but the full range of research and development. And then when I moved to being a contractor, I continued on in that research and development environment over at DARPA, and I will say nothing about what DARPA does. All I will tell you is to look at their publicly available website. They do a lot of very strange and interesting things over at that agency. So you'll notice a theme at the three different government agencies where I was a federal employee, and then later as a contractor also. I purposefully hit the major classifications of government contracting. So I purposely did major systems as in big billion dollar um, programs that are tracked by Congress and our legislature and the president. And then I did operational, which is where you buy anything you could possibly imagine, everything. And then I did research and development, which is more of a niche, but a very interesting niche with some special rules that you have to follow. So I, you could say I purposely rounded the bases to give myself a broad experience in all the different types of government contracting. And that's absolutely served me well in the private sector you know, as a small business owner providing, you know, consulting expert witness services, uh, training services, and authoring my books. Love it. And I love your books. And I love everything that you're sharing in terms of just fascinating insights. And I guess sticking then in, in government contracts, we know that subcontracts are a huge market segment. As an attorney yourself, how can attorneys help their clients when negotiating the terms of federal contracts? Rob, great question. Let me give you big picture. The big picture, remember, when you're representing your client or maybe you are the owner or somebody who works at a government contractor, remember when you have a subcontract, people like to say, oh yeah, I'm a government contractor. I have this government subcontract. Well, I want you to pause and think about that. Think about it differently. It's not truly a federal contract at all. A subcontract by its nature is B2B business to business. There are two companies that sign that subcontract. So if you're familiar with the term privity of contract, a direct contractual relationship, the subcontractors do not have privity of contract with the United States federal government. It's business to business. And so my big picture to you is to remember that and to preserve that because that is a huge advantage. 
When you're a subcontractor, because, the, because you're business to business, you can avoid a lot of the cumbersome regulations and cookie cutter FAR clauses that would otherwise be imposed upon you if you were a prime contractor with a direct contract with the United States government. So as much as possible, what you should do as a subcontractor is remember that you're in a business to business environment, try to preserve that contractual flexibility and kind of put up your shield and try to bat away as many as possible of those strange and foreign FAR clauses that the prime contractor might try to unnecessarily flow down or impose upon you. Uh, what I just described, trying to keep the subcontract lean and mean and efficient and kind of batting away unnecessary FAR clause flowdowns, that is a huge portion of what you should be doing to help out a subcontractor client. Just remember your business to business. Try to keep it that way. Preserve that flexibility of contract. Yeah, love it, love it. And let's let's switch to biggest mistakes then. What was one of the biggest mistakes that attorneys make when they dip their toes into government contracts here and there? Well, a lot of the mistakes I see are it comes from it's unintentional. It's it's based on on ignorance. They dive into the situation thinking uh, no big deal. I'm an attorney. I can handle this. I'll just do a little bit of research and I'll figure it out. I would advise you not to do that. I think you need to do extensive research. You need to bring in a professional. You need to read up on this. Maybe check out my books. Maybe give me a call. But the reason I bring that up is because it's not intuitive. The rules of government contracting, many of them, are in fact very surprising and very dangerous for your client. I'll give you just one example. Almost any government contract that you sign, you can be terminated for convenience of the government and you don't get expectation damages. Now, as attorneys, we know that expectation damages are the value of the deal that you would have got if the other party had not breached, right? You broke the contract. I was expecting to get $50 million over five years. You broke the contract. You owe me a piece of that, right? My expectation damages. Well, Rob, in government contracting, the federal government can terminate you for convenience any day of the week, every day the sun rises, is another day the government can wake up and decide, you know what, Rob, I'm going to fire you. You're finished. And you cannot get any expectation damages. That's kind of surprising, no? And not a really good deal for you. A lot of these strange rules of government contracting, they favor the government, which probably should come as no surprise because the government is a big, powerful entity. And of course, the federal courts are part of this network called the government. So a lot of the mistakes come from unfamiliarity, and I'll go over a couple more of the mistakes in these subcontracts. What you should avoid, this is kind of danger signal, red alert, alarm. If you see a subcontract and it says, the entire FAR is hereby incorporated into the subcontract, strike it, delete it. That's crazy talk. Don't accept that. And I'll tell you why, very succinctly. The FAR is a set of hundreds, if not thousands of regulations they are mutually exclusive and contradictory in most cases. And that's because you use this clause if it's construction. Use this clause if it's uh, supplies. Use another clause if it's services. So the idea of incorporating the entire FAR and all of its clauses into your subcontract, this is the mark of a rank amateur. And unfortunately, a lot of people try to do that. It's, it's incoherent. It's nonsensical. Don't allow it. Explain to your counterparty what I just said. Um, another one that's pretty dangerous 
is a lazy copy and paste of all the FAR clauses from the prime contract. They don't necessarily all need to be flowed down into the subcontract. What that means is the prime didn't or did not want to do the work of examining them to determine which ones actually have to be in the subcontract. Instead, they just throw the whole kitchen sink at you. And that can be pretty dangerous because sometimes they'll throw the kitchen sink at you and they'll just say, all of the FAR clauses from my contract is now put into yours, but we will substitute where it says government, that means prime contractor. Where it says prime contractor, that means you, the subcontractor. I see this dirty trick all the time. You want to avoid that because if you think it through, that can put your client in some very dangerous positions. For example, in government contracting, another surprising thing is that your company can be forced to provide extremely proprietary sensitive financial information to the government that you would never provide to anybody else under any circumstance. So if we do that little substitution where it says, oh, you know, government means prime contractor, prime means sub, suddenly your subcontractor is now in the position of giving its proprietary financial information to the prime contractor, which might be its competitor, probably will be its competitor in some other contract opportunity, which is a disaster for a government contractor. So you have to be careful. Um, avoid these problems. Uh, learn a little bit about the industry and stop the madness, folks. Just stop the madness. No more incorporating or trying to incorporate the entire FAR into every subcontract. That's just silly. We need to drop that one. Yeah, no, and thank you for being so so thorough and I guess highlighting so many pitfalls and things people could could break into and just just fascinating learning more about the contracts. So it's been absolutely riveting having you on the show, uh, Christoph. So if our listeners want to know more about you and what's the best way for them to get in contact and we'll shout out um, your relevant social media and web links too and we'll share them in this episode. Sure. My website is ChristophLLC.com. Um, you can send me an email, Christoph at ChristophLLC.com. You can subscribe to a free monthly newsletter that I have by sending my, sending me an email or clicking the link on my website. And uh, the, the best way to learn about government contracts for me is following me on LinkedIn, getting that monthly newsletter, or purchasing those three books in the Government Contracts in Plain English series on Amazon. All three books are available in paperback or Kindle edition for you, and they get tremendous feedback. They're flying off the shelves for a reason, and I'm confident that you will find them very useful as well. So check them out. Yeah, well, thank you so much once again, Christoph. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. But from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, for now, over and out. This week's review comes from Isadora Cavello. Highly recommend five stars. Fantastic podcast to anyone seeking further guidance on their legal career, pathways and development. Thank you so much, Isadora. We all truly, really appreciate you from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast. Thanks a million.